This special edition of the Foreign Desk was recorded amid the bustle and hubbub of the 2022 NATO summit in Madrid. Greetings from the floor of the media centre. The summit had been billed as the most important such gathering in decades, perhaps even the most important summit since NATO was founded in 1949. It is a makeable case. NATO had grown accustomed to regarding the threat posed by Russia as theoretical. It has become brutally actual. Though NATO is not directly involved in Ukraine's war, many NATO members are very much involved in arming and training Ukraine to defend itself, and certainly as Ukraine sees it, to defend Europe. The Madrid summit also saw confirmation that NATO's numbers would swell from 30 members to 32 as Sweden and Finland were welcomed aboard, a prospect that would have seemed incredible just a few months ago and a development which emphasises the seriousness of the challenge NATO now faces. And as if all that wasn't more than enough to be going on with, the Madrid summit saw NATO include China for the first time in its strategic concept. It is quite the turnaround for an alliance which less than three years ago was described by one of its key leaders, the President of France, as brain-dead and appeared to be regarded by another, the then-President of the United States, as an irrelevance and a nuisance. How is NATO responding to this test? How much stronger has Russia made the alliance, if only by accident? Is now really the time to try dealing with China as well? Why is there only one goddamn coffee machine in this entire building? This is the Foreign Desk. Today, NATO leaders took the historic decision to invite Finland and Sweden to become members of NATO. Transatlantic unity has been and will continue to be the greatest strength in our response to Russia. We're standing as one to support Ukraine and to enhance our own deterrence and defense capabilities. As a significant power, the way that China treats its partners is important for us. And we will continue to promote the things that we believe in. We need to acknowledge that there are some things on which China and New Zealand do not, cannot, and will not agree. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Later, we'll hear from Slovenia's foreign minister and from the head of policy planning at the office of the Secretary-General at NATO. But first, let's leave the summit venue for one of the Madrid hotels in which delegates are staying. When NATO was founded in 1949, its primary imperative was defending Europe from Russia, trading at the time as the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. After decades holding the line during the Cold War and further crises beyond, that threat to Europe's certainties has never seemed more real. I'm joined now by Gabrielius Landsbergis, Lithuania's Minister of Foreign Affairs. Minister, first of all, I want to ask a bit about what a foreign minister actually does at a summit like this. Who will you be speaking to? Other ministers, <laughs> first of all. Well, it's one of those great opportunities to meet your colleagues and to have these small conversations. We call them pull-asides. And probably this is the best place to do it. This is when you literally just grab somebody on their way somewhere else. Exactly, yeah. And either with a glass of something in your hand or during the meeting or somewhere where you feel that it's appropriate. And for country in the European Union, it's a bit easier because we have more of those. 
basically every month we would have a 27 sitting in one room and use this opportunity as well. But for NATO, this is not so common, not so often. And this is probably what everybody else will be doing. So do you arrive here with a pre-planned list of people you would quite like to pull aside while you are here? <laughs> yes, there is a, a list, obviously, uh, where you think that, you know, a phone call would not do or an email would not work. So you think that, you know, five, seven minutes, it's the most appropriate. So yes, you have a list. And then you might end up on somebody else's list <laughs> as well. <laughs> Coming here representing Lithuania of all countries, you are obviously not short of things to talk about because the two big things at this summit, there's obviously going to be Russia's invasion of Ukraine and there's also going to be the designation of China as a, a systemic challenge, which is a delightful euphemism we will get into more shortly. But Russia first, and there has been a lot of talk in recent weeks, as you'll obviously be aware about the Swalki Gap, this small interregnum the border between Poland and Lithuania separating Belarus from Kaliningrad and Lithuania's decision to stop some goods travelling along that route in line with EU sanctions is what you're about to say, right? <laughs> yeah, well... <it's... laughs> I, I, I saw the hand raised there. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, this is the common misconception and probably, you know, Russians did a good job, you know, trying to push the narrative that it's Lithuania did something. The cruel blockade of Russia by mighty yeah, exactly, Lithuania. which is absolute nonsense, you know, basically what, you know, we've just implemented the EU sanctions that were adopted in April and now they cover just 0.7% of the whole transit that goes through Lithuania. And there are other countries that where they can try to cross, you know, Poland has the same distance to cover from Belarus to Kaliningrad. Somehow they're not uh, <laughs> trying to pressure Poland to allow their one train of steel to cross uh, Polish territory. They decided to use this momentum to pressure Lithuania and with Lithuania to pressure the West. So it's a sort of a test, you know, whether we give in, you know, how do we give in, whether we, you know, we have a, what is a civilized conversation with Russia now these days, but still, you know, whether it's possible to have a legalistic conversation where you would explain that even within the treaties that were signed by EU and Russia, there is a norm that says that national security clause is there and European Union can use this clause. So basically, if there is a chance to talk about this with these words or with these terms, to show that West can withstand you know, the pressure. Or on the other hand, what would be more sad to see, you know, all of us crumbling at the first push. I mean, is it still possible, just to pick that up, to have any kind of civilised or legalistic conversation with Russia now? Are you able to pick up a phone and talk to Sergei Lavrov about anything if you wanted to? I would, I would not do that. But, you know, in my conversations with the media that I had throughout the last few weeks, I've mentioned that a couple of times, that if Russia is unhappy with the way that sanctions are implemented, they can always go to European Court of Justice. It's fully functioning, and they can truly do that, but it's up to them. Does the Sawalki gap need to be better defended, though? I mean, above and beyond what I know Lithuania wants from this summit, which is a, a massive stepping up of NATO's presence in all three Baltic states. But does the Sawalki gap require particular attention? What we've been looking into is to increase from a battalion to brigade. This stepping up to brigade, we've managed to find an agreement with our allies that it is possible to do that. And yes, you know, going back to the beginning of your question, I think that Suvalki Gap, and not just Suvalki Gap, basically NATO territory needs to be defended, no matter whether it's in Suvalki Gap, it's on the, because Suvalki is in Poland. So, you know, kind of we say that 
the northern part of Swalki Gap, which is in Lithuania, needs to be defended the same way that any other inch or centimeter of NATO territory needs to be defended. We tend to think of ourselves in this perspective that we are in some sort of a West Berlin situation. You could ask yourself a question whether, should West Berlin be defended? Well, it's NATO, isn't it? So it has to be defended. It cannot be just given away to Stalin and then, you know, thought of how should we reconquer it later, if at all. Oh, and it was. You know, it was, first of all, it was airlifted to supply and was defended with tanks and equipment. Obviously, everybody would say and probably it would be very, very difficult to defend West Berlin from the all might of Soviet Union or Western Pact even. But still, it doesn't matter. I mean, it was politically decided. It has to be defended. So this is what we've been looking at during the last four months after the attack against Ukraine happened. So this particular summit, though, does it feel to you like the Baltic states are being listened to about Russia in a way they might not have been before February 24th? Well, first of all, on a defense matters, yes, there is a change. We would not see the phrases that are being used in the conclusions that will be adopted in the summit if not for the consensus and understanding that was built as to what is Russia actually now. Russia is a threat and we have to defend from it and we have to defend those who are on the front line. So this has changed. What probably has not yet changed or actually we are still in the process of deciding as to what is Russia today politically. From military perspective, we understand that Russia is a threat, but politically. Can Russia still be envisaged as a part of any sort of you know, global rules-based order? I mean, should it be excluded from UN? Can any country be excluded from UN? Can a country be excluded from Security Council? Now G20, there are countries who are saying, look, you know, we cannot sit at the table with Putin. And then there are those who would say, no, we, this is the table where we discuss. We discuss what? The crimes against humanity, the genocide, you know, shelling of shopping centers. What, what kind of conversation would that be? So, but this conversation is still ongoing, and this is why Lithuania is taking part. <laughs> well, on the subject of grumpy superpowers who aren't necessarily entirely on board with the rules-based global order, Lithuania is in a curious position on another big topic at this summit, which is this designation of China as a systemic challenge and and as something that NATO needs to think seriously about. And Lithuania's kind of got there ahead of the rest of NATO and the rest of the EU by conducting this picturesque diplomatic row with China for some months now. This is over the Taiwan representative office opening in Vilnius and being allowed to call itself that, uh, which has prompted predictable fury from China. Do you see Lithuania as being a country that's able to lead NATO on this front as well. And just just this idea that if NATO is going to stand for something, does it have to stand for what you were describing as the rules-based order and take a very hard line against countries, however important or powerful they may be, which do not? Well, I think that we still, as the West, we still take this rules-based environment for granted. Somehow we still think that it's possible, that it's not being checked from historic perspective, the period after the Second World War, I'm not even talking about the Cold War, it's less than a blink. It's basically, you know, one day you could wake up, you know, not in uh, Pax Americana, which basically could be, you know, one way to call the rules-based <laughs> security order, but it could be called, you know, the Chinese piece. And when you think of it, it's, it's truly, you know, for me, it's not a very nice picture. 
So we take you know, this environment for granted, that this is forever. It's not forever. It's being checked now. And either we defend it, we strengthen it, we find a way how to restructurize it so that it works again for the next hundred years. Or we might wake up in the world that's completely different. Gabrielius, thanks for joining us. That was Lithuania's Minister of Foreign Affairs, Gabrielius Landsbergis. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. The media facility at this NATO summit is a vast hangar somewhere in the IFEMA conference centre in Madrid, accessible through a gauntlet of shuttle buses, roadblocks, checkpoints, armed and grumpy police, bag searchers, metal detectors and sniffer dogs. Please now join us for an improvised tour of the venue. What we're attempting to do here is, if you will, paint a certain picture with sound as we try to give you some sort of insight into what the media setup at the NATO summit in Madrid looks like. Right now, we, that is me and another producer, are standing in this absolutely enormous room somewhere uh, in the IFEMA Convention Centre. I'm going to say this is a maybe about three or four soccer pitches worth of floor space here. There's lots and lots of benches of workstations and journalists from all over the world uh, gawping into their laptops, um, wondering if anybody's going to turn up and talk to them. So what I think we will do is try walking across it and seeing what we see en route. There's lots of big TV screens. Um, these are presently just showing the logo uh, of this summit because we're waiting for the next um, events or arrivals at this thing to turn up. One of the weirdnesses of this is that almost all the press are seeing this exactly the same way as people back at home who haven't bothered to come to Madrid are seeing it, i.e. we're all watching it on big screens. Uh, for obvious security reasons, I think they're quite nervous about how many people they let within proximity of any of the world's actual leaders. Um, all the time we are walking along here, we are just walking past endless, interminable rows of white benches and workstations. Lots of camera tripods we're going to try really hard not to trip over because that would make us incredibly unpopular. But we are, we are coming up to the bit where all the TV crews are gathered. They have a kind of designated strip in the middle of this place. And there's maybe, so I'm not even sure where I'd start counting. There's probably 40 or 50 camera crews from all over the world lined up along this big strip. We should have timed this better because I reckon if we turned up when more of them were actually broadcasting, possibly live at the top of the hour, just as we walk along this 40 or 50 metres of carpet, we could have been on television in about 50 different countries, which would have been extremely confusing for the television viewers <laughs> of about that many countries. But it, it is quite a production here, and I suspect this is rather better attended than NATO summits usually are. NATO summits in the world of summitry, usually a preoccupation of friendless defence and foreign policy weirdos, um, but this one, for obvious reasons, is a very, very big deal indeed. Um, I'm not even sure where I would start counting the number of people in this room. It would run, I'd say, comfortably into four figures and probably multiples of four figures. Absolutely enormous space. Everybody in here is allowed in here because they're wearing a yellow, yellow lanyard. That, that, is the, that appears to be the colour for press at this NATO summit, which obviously we could take personally as a profession, but 
I'm going to just assume it was an accident and not some passive-aggressive assault on our character. There is a cafe which we are walking past at which there has been a very long and very irritable queue all morning for coffee. Uh, and over here we have, I think these are more sort of set pieces for grown-up TV networks who've come with their own, somebody's even bought their own fancy Perspex chair. We should have thought of that. We're just getting in everyone's way again. Uh, to the amusement of absolutely everybody, the menu does include uh, a Russian salad, which does rather suggest the caterers hadn't thought this all the way through. They also hadn't thought through the likely requirements of the people here gathered. There is literally one coffee machine trying to serve an entire summer's worth of journalists with predictable consequences. There's another cafe. I haven't spotted that one before. This has been a useful exercise. Where did you go? <laughs> that one over there. <laughs> I've been going to that one the whole time. You've been going to that one yes. the whole time. Ah, if only I'd known. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. I'm Andrew Muller. NATO, like most political entities, communicates in bold concepts and sweeping phrases. Someone, however, has to craft the actual policy underpinning these. I'm joined now by Dr. Benedetta Berti Alberti, Head of Policy Planning at the Office of the NATO Secretary General. Dr. Berti Alberti, first of all, let's talk about the significance of this year's NATO summit. When you measure it against previous years, does this one feel unusual? important to you? I think the answer is yes and that's for a variety of reasons. One is of course the magnitude of the political decisions that are being taken at this summit being on the adaptation of the deterrence and defense posture, being on increasing support for Ukraine, or being, of course, on adopting this new strategic concept to replace the 2010 previous one. So I think all of these reasons make it very substantial. In addition, of course, the fact that this summit takes place in the background of Putin's war of aggression against Ukraine and the fact that our security environment and many of the assumptions we held here for decades are mm. pretty much no longer valid, only adds to the importance. On that, though, when you talk about those assumptions no longer being valid, what's the assumption not always that maybe Russia would do something like this one day? Isn't this exactly what NATO's been preparing for? I would argue that if you take a look at the last strategic concept, so the last time mm. the Allies came together to write a strategy, actually the assumptions that underpinned the strategies were quite different. That concept said the Euro-Atlantic area is at peace. The risk of conventional war is low. And of course, we're going to be challenged and we're, there's going to be threats and challenges to our security, but they're not going to come from the Euro-Atlantic area. They're going to come from outside. They're going to be linked to instability. They're going to be asymmetric. And because of that, we're going to have to invest more and more in crisis management, including a strategic distance. And of course, the experience of Afghanistan was very much central to that mindset. So in that sense, no, I would say compared to 2010, we are in a completely different set of assumptions. At the same time, I would say you are correct that we did not just wake up in February 2022 and notice that the Russian Federation had being engaged in a pattern of extremely destabilizing behavior. I think from a NATO perspective, the real wake-up call was 2014, and mm. since then there's been a process of adaptation. 
But I think in terms of European and North American societies, our citizens, yes, this war is a watershed in terms of public perception, understanding of how our security environment is no longer that benign post-Cold War setting that we had grown used to over the past decades. Is there much conversation within NATO? Because this is something, as someone who's tried to follow the story, I still don't have a clear line on what NATO thinks is an acceptable outcome in Ukraine. What would NATO's idea, all the while, of course, bearing in mind that it is Ukrainians doing the fighting and dying here, what is it that NATO actually thinks this is what we want here? So I think that the Secretary General has been quite eloquent in putting at the very center of this question, we want to listen to what our Ukrainian partners are telling us. Mm. So in that sense, as an alliance of 30 different countries, I think it's very, very important that the stance that NATO has taken so far is connected to supporting Ukraine's right to self-defense, to calling out this uh, war of aggression. It is not about dictating what terms Ukraine should or should not accept. It is about supporting Ukraine in their fight for self-determination. We have seen Russia now at war for a few months. What has NATO learned from that, measured against what NATO had been prepared for, in theory, for the last few decades? Is there any thought that perhaps NATO vastly overestimated the threat posed by Russia's conventional forces because with all due acknowledgement of the fact that Ukraine is obviously being massively helped by many outside powers I think a lot of people have been very surprised by Russia's failure to win this quickly and decisively. I think there has definitely been, as you rightly pointed out, surprise over the Ukrainian military performance and their fortitude and how mm. steadfast they are resisting aggression. So I think that's absolutely true. In terms of longer term lessons, I would just start with a little caveat, and that is that unfortunately, it doesn't seem like we are nearing the end of this particular mm. conflict. So it's very difficult to, and perhaps a little premature, to take long-term lessons out of what we're seeing. I'm afraid we're more in a marathon rather than a sprint when it mm. comes to this conflict. But of course, that's to be seen. In terms of what NATO is taking uh, initial lessons, I think one important point to make is that we saw that the adaptation of our deterrence and defense posture. So what we did since 2014 set us up to be able to respond quickly after the 24th of February. Within hours, NATO allies were able to agree to activate defense plans. They were able to step up our deterrence and defense posture to set up four additional battle groups to reinforce our eastern flank and all of that really build on the work done since 2014. We're also seeing that working with partners and security assistance and supporting our partners in building their resilience, in building their ability to counter aggression, that that is a good investment. Of course, the credit goes to the Ukrainians for their courage and for their resistance and for their military performance. But I think it's clear that assistance both through NATO, through the European Union and through allies has really enabled the Ukrainians to perform the way they are performing. And then, of course, and maybe that's the last point, we are seeing the importance of civil preparedness, resilience as a whole of society concept. Mm. That's something that's been very important. And I think that part of the Ukrainian success is also derives from their ability to remain united and also their ability to show strong resilience as a society. And I think that's something we should be really learning from. 
Let's talk a bit about the new strategic concept which is going to be floated at this summit because like NATO doesn't have more than enough to be going on with, it is going to start talking about China as what it calls a systemic challenge and that, and that is why the leaders of South Korea, New Zealand, Japan and Australia are also here. When you talk about a systemic challenge, when you use that phrase, which is obviously one of those great diplomatic euphemisms for something, what is it a diplomatic euphemism for? You're not quite saying China is an adversary as such, but what does it really mean in practice? Well, I think that as an alliance, NATO has been thinking about its approach towards China for a couple of years now. Mm. But it is absolutely true that this will be the first strategic concept ever in the history of the alliance where the issue of China is addressed. There's many reasons for why China features in the strategic concept. One is because, of course, and I think we would all agree that when you're looking at trends that shape our security environment in the medium to long term, it is almost unavoidable to think about China's rise, its assertive behavior, its role on the world stage. These are trends that impact not just the global balance of power, but also your Atlantic security. So in that measure, of course, it's something for NATO to think about. Then, of course, there's also an understanding that we're finding ourselves in a security environment characterized by growing strategic competition. Concretely, that means that there's more challenges across the spectrum, political, military, but also economic, ideological, and that those contribute to shape our security environment. We also see that countries like China and Russia are working deliberately to push back against the rules-based international order. That's also something that has an impact on our own security and our own way of life. Therefore, there is definitely a case as to why we need to pay attention to these dynamics, be cognizant of them, and prepare ourselves as an alliance, which means situational awareness, which means preparedness, resilience, which means being acutely aware of potential strategic dependencies. There's a whole range of issues that are important to our security and they're not necessarily traditional military issues, but Mm. they definitely impact on security. So it's this broader approach through which we also look at the potential systemic challenges that the People's Republic of China may pose to your Atlantic security. I realize that this may be further in the distance, but if we're talking about China becoming a growing systemic challenge, if you like, has there been any even vague thought given to the idea that that may not be the limit of NATO expansion and that one day those countries like South Korea, Japan, Australia and New Zealand could be welcomed into. Granted, they're a long way from the North Atlantic, but you're stuck with the acronym you're stuck with. Is that completely fantastic to think about? I understand the question and I think that I would just maybe make one caveat and that is that you're completely correct that we're looking at China, which is not a traditional NATO issue. Mm. At the same time, we are looking at the impact of those policies on the Euro-Atlantic area. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it is very much focused on how these trends affect and may impair our ability to fulfill our mission, which is to provide defense and security for the Euro-Atlantic area. So I wouldn't say that it's an expansionary in that Mm. sense. It is a globally-minded NATO, more than a NATO that is looking to expand endlessly, I would say. But at the same time, it is also true that we are aware that we live in a world where threats are interconnected, transnational, and in which 
we cannot think about the security of the Euro-Atlantic area in isolation. We need mm. to work with others. And the example you made referring to NATO partners in Asia Pacific, and we have Korea, we have Japan, we have Australia, we have New Zealand. These are becoming closer and closer partners because we have shared challenges. And there are a number of global security challenges from tackling the impact of climate change to cyber threats, to cyber threats, where geographical boundaries matter, but they also don't. So we need to work with broad coalitions. That's not necessarily means that the structure of the alliance is shifting. We have a clear North Atlantic Treaty, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So NATO is an alliance for North America and Europe. That's the way it was conceived. But we wouldn't be able to do our job properly in a global and interconnected world if we didn't work with partners near and far, well beyond the Euro-Atlantic area. Benedetta, thank you. That was Dr. Benedetta Berti Alberti, Head of Policy Planning at the Office of the NATO Secretary General. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Delegates to a NATO summit spend a lot of time being wrangled into photo opportunities, but one such event at this summit seemed unusually significant. A gathering of NATO's currently serving women, foreign or defence ministers, eight in total. One of them is our next guest. I'm joined now by Tanya Fajon, Slovenia's Minister of Foreign Affairs. First of all, this is your first NATO summit as foreign minister. How have you found it? It's very interesting. Of course, it's very challenging. We are having a huge responsibility now, first month of the government, first summit for me. But it's good to see this unity or this solidarity you can feel between the partners of NATO alliance, also with the other partners. I had a lot of bilateral meetings and the message of Slovenia is we, of course, want to be a reliable partner. Mm. We are condemning the Russian aggression in Ukraine. We will continue our humanitarian development support, also military support, even though we are a small country. Um, But my main message when I took over the ministry is that We want to be a credible European partner. We want to respect the rule of law, the democracy, the solidarity, and ally with all these countries that are protecting the world order and try to have a dialogue of peace or a policy of peace, um, stability, security. So, Do you get the sense, because it's certainly something that struck me, that all of that stuff about the rule of law, rules-based order, etc., is is much more deeply felt by those European countries which, if you like, are newer to it and perhaps don't take it for granted in the way that the countries of, of Western Europe do. You could uh, feel some shift or differences between um, the East or the West, hmm. but I wouldn't say that's the clear line, maybe because we are newer democracies or we have less uh, history, hmm. um, but nevertheless... Slovenia has always been, in a way, uh, very much committed to European integration and to our international obligations. We are a small country, therefore we need a strong unity and we need to be a partner of international organizations because we are maybe even more fragile, more vulnerable. And we live in the region that 30 years ago suffered bloody wars, if you think of the Western Balkans. Mm. So for us, the Western Balkans and the security in our region is of extreme importance. And even in today's discussion, with the war on European soil, with the war in Ukraine, we are facing possible new security threats in our direct neighborhood. That is why we are really strengthening the need. Don't forget 
and left behind the countries of the Western Balkans. I was wondering if a, an event like this was fascinating for you on a level it might not necessarily be for other politicians because, you know, once a journalist, always a journalist. What do you get to see that you didn't used to get to see when you came to these things sitting on the other side mm-hmm. of the microphone? It's uh, very good to see the commitment of all world leaders that are together at one table. Every sentence counts, what is Mm. the message, and today I felt quite a strong unity, even maybe greater unity than usually when you're back home and you deal with domestic issues or challenges. But being uh, before a former journalist myself, today, maybe after 20 years, I entered the press room here. (laughs) And I think it was the last time in Madrid for the big NATO summit that I was working as a journalist. So it also brings some, maybe nostalgia, a little bit of the feeling that on one hand, being a journalist myself in the past, I just met a Jordan foreign minister who reminded me that he had the same past. So obviously we are quite some colleagues in politics that had the same past also experience in journalism. And you can tell me, it's only our listeners listening, have you heard anything while you've been talking to the other foreign ministers where there's been even a part of you that just thinks, gee, I wish I could call my editor and tell them that? I was today very much inspired to meet the female ministers, mm. the defence and foreign ministers. We had a, our first meeting, we said we are 10, 11 at the table. It's still underrepresented at a, such big table. Mostly it's a male, but it's a topic that got close to my heart because it's about women, in not only in negotiating or war processes where can play a strong role, but also peace, security, equality. And we are really trying hard to connect also during the summit. This is a topic that normally doesn't come to people. That was today the occasion I would call my editor and say, please do report. It's only few of us, but we want to be heard. This was, of course, the big photo call earlier of all the female foreign and defence ministers who are gathered here. And I'm always a bit nervous about framing this question because on the one hand, it seems like a really hack question. But on the other hand, I do wonder, well, certainly from your point of view, if you think there's anything to it that as a general tendency, do women approach questions of defence and security, even at a nation-state level, in a different way to the way in which men traditionally have? Absolutely. I think we have a much stronger sense for women in need. Sexual violence is, for example, like a tool in war to be used. Quite often we see it in Ukraine. So this is something, these are topics that um, we have to raise our concerns. And women, it's um, no one uh, acknowledged that they are very good in negotiation, war negotiation processes, and they are not used to the extent we could use them. So and we have to bring these issues on the table. We have to protect women. Even now in the war in Ukraine, when we see a lot of women fleeing with kids, we have to stand in solidarity with them, help to help them. And quite often that is the women voice that is to be heard than the general discussion you see at the summit. I want to talk about the region that Slovenia is, is situated in and about the Western Balkans and NATO mm-hmm. Obviously, most of the Western Balkans, most of the former Yugoslavia is, are now NATO members. How important is it, do you think, that NATO works harder and faster to try and bring Bosnia-Herzegovina in? It's not most. There are three countries that are part of a NATO mm. alliance, and Bosnia, Herzegovina and Kosovo. Certainly, we want to support um, that NATO enlarges. Um, and it's not only about NATO alliance, it's also European Union's mm. um, enlargement process. 
What I mentioned before, it's about peace and security, stability. All these countries are facing economic challenges, political challenges, but I think the message was even more important to show the Western Balkans that Europe is present there, there is no alternative to the enlargement, even though in Europe we speak about a broader European political community. I don't know if you're aware, Slovenia recently gave an initiative also to mm. give a candidate status to Bosnia and Herzegovina, to think a little bit out of the box if that we simply fasten the procedure. So I think a lot is at stake. It's 20 years soon from the Thessaloniki summit and 20 years discussing about the enlargement process and now not delivering at least on what were our promises, then we are really losing the countries. We've spoken a lot, obviously, while we've been here about the accession of Sweden and Finland, which I know hasn't happened yet, but we do now now know that it's going to. This obviously makes a huge difference to the Baltic states. We've talked to a lot about it. We've talked to representatives from the Nordic states about it. What does it mean in particular to Slovenia? I mean, I see this first, um, the sovereign decision of two countries, which I mm. fully support, and Slovenia also. I'm glad I congratulated my both social democrat leaders of two countries, because I know both ladies and um, mm-hmm. prime ministers very well. And I think it's very important for collective security in Europe. That's um, why we see today maybe a historic decision, but it's certainly good for the alliance in terms of collective security. In new challenges, we, and we are not speaking only about a, a war challenge or a security threats, but also about a climate change, about cybernet or cyber security, energy security. So it's really the whole new environment that we are addressing today with NATO summit. Tanya Fajon, Foreign Affairs Minister of Slovenia, thank you very much for joining us here on the Foreign Desk. And that's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at esatmonocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.